Lord, help us to be sensitive to people who are around us in our fellowship, where we work, people that we associate with who have burdened situations, whose hearts are weary, that we will approach them correctly and that we'll minister to them. Help us, Lord, to pour balm upon their wounds. In Jesus' name, amen. In verse 13, Paul says, But we ought always to thank God for you, brothers, loved by the Lord, because from the beginning God chose you to be saved through the sanctifying work of His Spirit and through belief in the truth. He called you to this through our gospel, that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the teachings we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. May our Lord Jesus Christ Himself and God our Father, who has loved us and by His grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope, encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. I find myself many times placed in a situation of dealing with people who are hurting by very nature of what I do. Not a week goes by that I don't hear of a divorce, a separation, perhaps a death, a disease in someone's family, a child being molested, a family breaking up, or something where there are hearts that are burdened down. Now, these are situations that probably you are also in contact with, maybe not to the same extent or in number, but certainly you meet people who are always saying, would you listen to me? Can I pour out my heart to you? I'm hurting. Do you have anything to help me with? And so because of that, we're not just this morning dealing with going through trials or having a heavy heart, but approaching other people who do. It is time that you learn how to counsel people, how to share with people. I'm sure many of you have been the recipient of counsel. You've come to someone who's shared things with you that have lifted you up and they've helped you. And now it's time to do the same to other people. For it says in 2 Corinthians that God comforts us so that we can comfort other people who are going through it just like we were. And so this morning we talk about approaching a heavy heart. We need to cultivate encouragement. The reason being is that discouragement is no respecter of persons. It happens to everyone. I remember the first Bible that a friend of mine gave to me. At that time he was just someone who was an authority figure. But I came into a Bible study one evening with my handy-dandy messed up Bible that was a paperback that I stuffed in my pocket. And the guy said, look, let me give you a real Bible. It was my first King Jimmy Bible. I admired that guy because he was always stable, strong, confident in the Lord. I always looked to him as a model of consistency and encouragement. And a few years ago at a meeting that we were both at, he said, I'm ready to quit. I feel so discouraged. I'm ready to quit my ministry. I thought, you're kidding. You gave me my first Bible. You're ready to quit? You've always been strong, always stable. 
We need to cultivate encouragement because of the discouragement that happens to people. William Barclay in his commentary said, One of the highest human duties is the duty of encouraging people. It is easy to laugh at men's ideas. It's easy to pour cold water on their enthusiasm. It is easy to discourage others. The world is full of discouragers. But we have a Christian duty to encourage one another. Many a time a word of praise or thanks or appreciation or cheer has kept a man on his feet. Blessed is the man who speaks such a word. When Paul sat down one evening to write a letter to the Thessalonians, he was writing to a church that was three, four months old, baby Christians. And it was a church that was growing by leaps and bounds. Paul says, you're full of faith. You've got lots of love. He commended them. But it was a church that was really going through the fire. They were being persecuted in an intense kind of a fashion. Somebody wrote a letter to them. Now, it wasn't Paul, but somebody wrote a letter that said, you guys are already in the great tribulation in the day of the Lord. And they were flipped out. And so Paul writes them a second letter, Second Thessalonians, to encourage them. He recognizes that he's dealing with people who feel broken, whose hearts are burdened. And so he approaches them in a very tender kind of a fashion. And uh, we learn a lot here in verses 13 through 17 on approaching other people who have heavy hearts. Paul doesn't say, I want you guys just to snap out of it. You're all carnal. You shouldn't complain. You shouldn't feel this way. Neither does he say, well, discouraging feelings are negative and you don't have to confess that. You don't have to receive negativity. You can just be positive. That is called band-aid theology. It's the theology that never does anybody any good. It just puts a seal on the real feelings. We don't receive that. We don't feel that way. You just make a confession or snap out of it. He deals with them very tenderly in a beautiful kind of a fashion. As someone said, why is it that the church is the only outfit that shoots its own wounded? There needs to be encouragement. I read a saying once that... uh, read like this, a pat on the back, although only a few vertebrae removed from a kick in the pants is miles ahead in results. And that's Paul's approach. It's a pat on the back. He comes alongside to encourage those whose hearts are broken. He says in the first couple verses, we ought always to thank God for you brothers, loved by the Lord, because from the beginning God chose you to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, through belief in the truth, He called you to this through our gospel, that you might share in the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul, first of all, reminds them of some basic truths that people who are suffering often forget. Suffering has a tendency to rob perspective. You know, you're overwhelmed by your problems, so overwhelmed that even the basic truths you forget because the problem seems so large, so bigger than life, that someone can come alongside and remind you of something and you go, that's right, I know that, but I've just forgotten it because this thing has gotten so out of hand, it seems. It reminds me of Isaiah in chapter 6. He receives a vision. He said, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high, lifted up, sitting on the throne, and his train filled the temple. 
God was reminding Isaiah of something very simple in the midst of his suffering. For King Uzziah was a good king, but he's dead. Who's going to take over the throne? Who's going to rule the nation? Uzziah was the one that brought the nation together. Now what's going to happen? No one's on the throne. God was saying, I'm still on the throne, Isaiah. And he saw the Lord sitting up on the throne. In other words, God was saying, it's okay. I'm in charge. Let me remind you of something you forget so often. Paul, first of all, in these few verses says, I thank God for you guys. Now that's a good approach. I thank the Lord for what he's done in your life. He says, we ought always to thank God for you brothers. Now that must have been a twist to the Thessalonians. I want to say Thessalonians, but their city was Thessalonica. But I'm sure it was kind of a twist, kind of odd for them to hear Paul, the great apostle, the one that everyone knew, say, I thank God for you. I'm sure they thought you do as they read this letter. Now, shouldn't we say, we thank God for you, Paul? I mean, after all, you came and started the church here. You came on the evangelistic circuit. We owe a great debt to you. We listen to your messages. Shouldn't we go around Paul and say, oh, Paul, we thank God for you. You're such a mighty man of God. After all, we're unknown Thessalonians, baby Christians. Paul says, I thank God for you. And we ought always to thank God for you. That is, we are bound, as the New King James says. We have a debt to thank God for you guys. We thank God always for you, brethren. Some people translate this verse saying, we think of you individually and call your name to God one by one. Paul's approach was individual. It was tender. One by one, individually, he thinks of those new believers that he just met in Thessalonica and he's praying for them before the Lord. First lesson when you approach someone with a heavy heart, be individual. Give them eye contact. Don't give them a little sermonette about the world and about this person. Speak to them when you're one-on-one. Look at them right in the eye. Put your hand on their shoulder or hold their hand or something if you need to. Let them know that they are important, that it's individual. Next, he reminds them of a basic truth that many of us forget when we're really going through tough times, and that is simply God loves us. He says, we ought always to thank God for you, loved of the Lord or beloved. I treasure that phrase. Because it is a phrase that it is, is so overused and so forgotten, next time you encounter someone who's going through a trial and they're just freaking out, They've forgotten that God loves them. If they really were aware and in touch with that, I think they'd be a little more at ease. If they really knew at that moment God is really concerned for them and and loves them, I think they would be more at ease. When I was a young Christian, I would call this one place of ministry a corporation. And uh, they would, the gal would answer the phone. She would say, well, this is so-and-so place of business. God loves you every time someone would call. And I remember as a young Christian thinking, that bugs me. And it takes so long for them to answer the phone. This is so-and-so speaking. God loves you. Until one day I really needed to hear that. And it just punched my heart. I needed to hear that God loved me because I was going through a time that I just forgot about that. 
And I believe that Christians, that people in general, even Christians have a hard time believing that. Realizing that. It's hard to come to grips with a God who loves me unconditionally. We're always trying to earn God's love. Prove to Him that we're worthy of Him loving us. Instead of just accepting His love freely. And it's hard to understand God's love because His love is so incomparable. There's nothing we have to compare with His love. Because we don't love like that. Your husband, your wife, does not really love totally like God loves. You have nothing quite to compare it with. It is always consistent. It always thinks the highest. It's always there. And you can never get out of a place where God doesn't love you. Now, you can come to a place where you don't feel it. That happens a lot, doesn't it? Especially in suffering, we don't feel His love. We're not in touch with the fact that He really cares. We think, who cares if anybody? God's love never ceases, but it's possible to get out from the umbrella of God's love. If we went out in the sunshine this morning, you can't keep the sun from shining. But you can keep yourself from experiencing the sunshine. You can go under a tree or put an umbrella over your head. But the sun is still there. You're just not experiencing the warmth of the sunshine. When I was a kid, there was a time when I doubted anybody's love for me. And it was just a stupid incident. I was in school and the teacher the day before said, now tomorrow kids, bring your assignment, bring your homework. Don't forget this project that we've been working on for a couple weeks, this little essay report. Bring it to school in the morning. Don't forget. And she kept saying, don't forget. What did I do? I forgot it. At lunchtime, I reached in my notebook and my paper wasn't there and I freaked out. So I decided that I would promptly go home which was eight miles away, and get my report. And I started walking through the boonies. I left school at lunchtime, and I'm walking through the boonies. I figured, I'm going to get kicked out of school. She told me not to forget it. I can't tell my parents because they'll kick me out of the house. Well, the school had called my dad, and my dad is driving back to the school, and he spots me from the road walking out in the boonies, you know, running toward home. And he honks his horn, and I see him, and I run the other direction. When he finally catches up with me, I get into the car and I'm shaking because I figure this is it. I'm expelled from being a son. My dad said, what's wrong with you? I mean, it wasn't what's wrong that you left it at home, but why are you shaking? I'm not mad at you. I love you. You don't have to worry. A lot of kids leave their homework at school, son. Let's go back to school. Let's get this thing over with. Turn it in and then we'll go home afterwards. You know, I'm not mad at you. I love you. You do? I doubted it. His love was always constant, but there was a time where I wasn't experiencing it. In fact, I thought he was angry at me. Paul then goes on to say, not only does God love you, but he says, because from the beginning God chose you to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. God loves you and God picked you. Important thing to share with people who are hurting, who feel useless. That God chose you. That God's love for you is constant, so much so that before the foundations of the world, He chose you to be saved. He picked you to be saved. You belong to the Lord. 
He's begun a good work in you. He's not going to dump you now. He hasn't brought you this far to let you go. He has no unfinished projects. He's still going to work in your life. Again, this is a difficult concept for us to understand because so much emphasis is placed upon our choice, our response to God. We choose the Lord. We seek the Lord. And it is true, we do make choices and we need to choose following God. But from the beginning, we didn't choose the Lord. He chose us. Jesus told his disciples who had made a choice to follow him, he said, Psst, you guys, I want to tell you a secret. You didn't choose me, I chose you and ordained you to bear forth fruit. From the very beginning, God chose man. In the garden, did Adam run to God? And we see Adam running away from God, like I ran from my dad. And the very first question that God ever asked humanity was, Adam, where are you? For he had to seek man. In the traveling that I've done around the world, I will encounter Western people, usually Europeans and Americans, who go to holy places in Asia, especially in India where the gurus are. And I'll say, what are you doing here? And they'll say, I'm on a search for God. And usually my response is somewhat sarcastic. I'll say, I didn't know he was lost. I think it's the other way around. I think God is searching for you. And I think that's why I'm talking to you right now is because God's been searching for you all this time. You're the one that's lost, not God. God chose you from the beginning. God didn't choose you when you said, I'll surrender my life to the Lord. Okay, I'll choose Him now. His heart's right. God chose you before you were born. God chose you, it says in Ephesians, before the creation of the world. And I like what Charles Spurgeon once said. He said, I'm glad God chose me before I was born because he never would have picked me after I was born. (laughs) Now, there's a lot of people that have a problem with this, what is called predestination or God choosing you before you even came into the world. God picks certain people who are going to be his. And immediately people say, that ain't fair. How can God give people the freedom of choice and then choose people to be saved? Very simple. God has something that you and I don't have. It's called foreknowledge, precognition. He knows everything in advance. The Bible says we live our life as if it's a tale that has been told already. It's a rerun to God. God can see into the future and know the people who will raise their hands or come forward or say, Jesus, be my Savior. Knowing that in advance, he can choose them in advance. He knows who's going to be on the winning team. How can you say that's not fair? Let's say we were to have a competition, baseball, basketball, and I'm a captain and you're a captain. And of all the people out here, uh, I look at the most athletic person and I say, I think I'm going to win if I pick this guy. I pick him. You say, that's not fair. Why isn't it fair? I have the freedom of choice, like you have the freedom of choice, and I picked him. He's on my team. God just happens to know in advance who's going to choose him, who the winners are going to be. That's why I'm so grateful and thrilled that he chose me. You say, that's not fair. Why? Well, because I'm not a Christian. Well, why aren't you a Christian? God has made the way available. He's opened the doors for you. All you have to do now is come. Come to the Lord. Accept Him personally. 
Make a commitment to Jesus Christ. No, no way. I'm not going to do that. Well, then maybe God hasn't chosen you. But you'll find something once you come through the door. Once you make the decision by your own free choice to follow Jesus Christ, you know what you're going to find? A great truth that He has chosen you from the beginning of the world. And you get to heaven, you'll see your name in the book of life. And God said, yeah, I put that in there before I created the world. Well, how did you know? Well, I just knew that you'd respond, and so I chose you. It's important when people are suffering suffering to re- tell them, to remind them that God loves them so much that their name was locked away by God before the foundations of the world. That's how much God loved them. So much so that He would pick them, that He would choose them. Going on in these same verses, Paul reminds them that they have a calling from God. He says in verse 14, He called you to this through our gospel that you might share in the glory of Jesus Christ. You have a calling. I have found that when people are overwhelmed by their suffering, by their disease, by a death in the family, by their job failing, when they're overwhelmed by hard circumstances, they tend to minimize their importance. They think, man, I've been going through this thing so long. Yeah, but God has a plan for you. God wants to use you. Oh, what? God doesn't want to use me. I'm so unimportant. I've always got these problems. I can never seem to rise above these problems. It's so difficult for me. It's so tough for me. God couldn't use me like He's using all of these other people that I see at church who are just seem so right on, so happy. Suffering tends to cloud our feeling of importance and worth as far as doing anything for God is concerned. And so Paul reminds them, God loves you. God picked you before the world was created. And God chose you. That is, God has called you, given you a calling. He wants to use you. You have a function in the body of Christ. There was once a woman who wrote this story, a very true story about her neighbor. She was a modest, soft-spoken woman, trim, quiet, unassuming. She was not the type one particularly noticed among others in the crowd. Her modest Oregon home was just like her, trim, quiet, and unassuming. It was not the type that one particularly noticed among others on the street. She often felt worthless. She told her pastor, You know, everyone at church seems to have a special talent, but I don't have any ministry at all. Now, over in Papua New Guinea, below the equator and half a world away, a tanned, blonde missionary towered above black-skinned natives, often stooping to enter the grass-thatched huts. Sometimes he trekked with them down a jungle trail. Sometimes he piloted his helicopter to take them to a doctor or bring them supplies. Sometimes he flew over impenetrable terrain to transport translators working to bring God's message into the languages of the people. Often the young pilot told co-workers, I'm happy in this ministry God has given me, and I know this is where he wants me to work for him. One day a friend asked, How did you happen to become a missionary anyway? Well, my brother and I were going around our neighborhood one Halloween night when a neighbor dropped an invitation to Sunday school in our trick-or-treat bags. This is what started Mom and Dad and my little brother and me going to a Bible-believing church. Well, what happened to the other three in your family? Well, my brother's a Sunday school superintendent. 
Mom writes articles for Christian publications. Dad directs the choir and other church activities. His friend was awed and silent for several seconds before musing. Wow! And all that resulted from a simple invitation to Sunday school dropped into your trick-or-treat bags. Back in her home in Oregon, the modest, soft-spoken woman still felt worthless because she had no ministry at all. I don't know why God didn't give me some special talent, she said to herself. I don't teach. I can't play the piano. And I'm not young enough to go out as a missionary. The quiet woman was right. She didn't teach. She couldn't play the piano. And she was unable to go out as a missionary. About all she'd ever done was drop an invitation to Sunday school into two little neighbor boys' Halloween bags. You see how worthlessness can overcome us when we're feeling persecuted or down or something around us has caused hurt. And we think, I'm I'm not worth beans. That's not the truth. God has ordained you to bring forth fruit. He's given you a function in the body of Christ. And that's what Paul shares with them, that God has given you a calling. And the second part of that calling is found in verse 14. Look at it with me. That you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now Paul takes them out of their present situation into the future. He says, I want to remind you of a few few things. First of all, I thank God for you guys. God loves you. You're important to Him. He picked you. He has a calling on your life. You're, st- you're supposed to do something. And you have such a future in store for you. You have God's glory. Whenever I leave the United States, and I do that a couple times a year, I am made aware of how different my culture is from other people's culture. Now, when I'm among all of you, We do the same things. We live the same kind of a way. But when you travel overseas, especially to a third world country, you are made aware of those cultural differences. And I always try to fit in by eating like they eat with my hands or wearing what they wear. But everybody knows that I'm an American. I mean, how Asian do I look? As the days go on in a third world country, those cultural differences begin to cause a little discomfort. After eating that kind of food, I start missing Sizzler, Big Macs. Well, not Big Macs, but at least Sizzler. I'll find myself waking up in the middle of the night dreaming of steak and lobster. I'll get tired of the intense heat. I think, man, doesn't anybody have an air conditioner around here? And most of all, I'll Think of my wife and my son. I think, man, I want to go home. I can't wait till that plane leaves in a week. I can't wait to go home. I get homesick. Paul, I think, is getting them a little homesick on purpose. Okay, you guys, you're suffering now. It's tough. But God loves you. He's chosen you. But beyond all that, this is temporary. This is going to last a while. You may suffer a while. But after this, man... Let me just tell you what God has in store for you. He's got glory in store for you. He's got a future in store for you. This is not your home. You have something better to look forward to than this. Now he says in verse 15, exhorting them, So then, brothers, 
So then, brothers. In other words, in view of all that I've just told you, you who are suffering, I've just reminded you that God loves you. You who are suffering, I just reminded you that God chose you before you were born. You who are suffering, I just reminded you that God has a job for you to perform while you're here. You who are suffering, I just reminded you that even after this time of suffering, the future's great. Because of all this, stand firm and hold on. Stand firm and hold to the teachings we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. There's always a danger when we are mocked for serving the Lord, persecuted like the Thessalonians were. When you're at work or when you go to a family reunion and they, they say, I'm tired of hearing this Christian jive. And every day they'll say something derogatory about you, that mocking, that persecution, like these guys were going through. There's always that danger of thinking, yeah, maybe they're right. Maybe I'll back down. Maybe I'm too narrow anyway and I'm really too bold in the Lord. And maybe I should just be more open to all of the other religions going around me instead of being so dead set on Jesus saving people. That has a tendency to wear at you and Paul knows that it has a tendency to wear. And so he says, hold on to those teachings. Or literally, take your hands and grip tighter than you've ever gripped before. And stand immovable is what the word means. Stand so firm that you don't be swayed either way by those people's opinions. Stand and hold. Church, we are living in desperate times. You all know about all the cults that are spreading through the United States. But recognize something, that there's a common denominator between almost every single cult. Almost all of them, without exception, claim a Christian base and that's confusing to a lot of us. A lot of them will say, well, we believe in the Bible. It's one of our holy writings. Jesus is one of our prophets, one of our founding leaders. The Baha'is teach this. Transcendental meditation teaches this. Mormonism teaches this. We could go on and on. It causes a lot of Christians to become disillusioned and think, yeah, you know, this Jesus is the only way bit. Maybe I'm too narrow. Maybe I should back off. Paul knew they were persecuted. He said, hold on. Stand immovable. Don't budge. Have you ever been stressed out? Um, so low, and all of a sudden, someone will call you or write you or meet you at church and say something to you, a word of encouragement that just comes at the nick of time, the right time. That's what encouragement or exhortation same word that's what it means that's what it means that's what it does right in the nick of time it lifts you up you've been feeling so weighed down and someone will come and give you a card a letter a phone call a pat on the back pray with you encourage you and it just lifts you up for my birthday many people in the church and the kinships gave me this card and each one signed it individually and some wrote little encouraging remarks came at a great time. I just thought, oh, how encouraging. Being reminded of those basic truths that are so easily forgotten. God loves you. Keep it up. But he doesn't leave them there. He says, not only am I reminding you of all the things that 
God's doing with you guys. Not only do I thank God for all that He's done and remind you that God loves you and that He chose you and that He has a calling for you and that He has a future for you. And not only do I say, hang on, but let me pray for you. That's the final step. He says, may our Lord Jesus Christ Himself and God the Father who loved us and by His grace gave us, notice these words, eternal encouragement. I love that. And good hope. Encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. He prays for encouragement and for strength. Folks, any counsel that doesn't lead you to this step is not worth two cents. Any counsel that just gives you a pep talk and platitudes and instructions without leading you to the throne of grace is not worth its time. Anyone who shares with anyone else who's suffering, should at the final step say, now that I've shared all this with you, I'm going to pray for you. Let's pray right now. Let me take you and leave you before the throne of God. Because no one can comfort quite like Jesus can comfort. Only Jesus knows those crevices inside of our hearts that no one else can touch. Christianity is more than a pep talk. And you might be able to have sweet words of encouragement for people. Maybe even give them a sermonette. And they'll think, that guy's powerful. Or that gal really has her act together. But a good counselor will come to the throne room of Almighty God with that person and pray for that person. By the way, the card that I received on my birthday, the last page, there's about four pages in it with all these people writing names. It was neat. The last page was a piece of paper folded up. And I opened it up, and in the paper there was 52 categories representing 52 weeks of the year, from this last birthday to the next one. And across, on each week of the year, people wrote their names, people that would be praying and fasting every week throughout the whole year for me. I thought, man, I can't lose. I can't wait to see what's going to happen this year in my life. What kind of support? Wow. Now that's how to approach a heavy heart. That's how to approach people that you meet day in and day out where you work and where you live who are going through some tough times. You come alongside of them. How about this approach? I thank God for you. You do? Yeah, let me tell you why. Let me tell you what you've meant in my life. You mean I'm that important? Yeah, but you're important to God too. See, God loves you. You might have forgotten that. God chose you a long time ago. And if He chose you that long ago, He's got a plan for you in the future. And God has a calling on your life. He wants you to be involved. He wants to use you. And not only that, but when this is all over with, God's got a home for you that's going to make Hawaii look like a third world country. So hold on. Hang in there. Let's go for it together. And after all that encouragement, praying together. Here's the message in a nutshell. We have a common bond called koinonia, fellowship. All of us enjoy it. We have things in common. But koinonia needs lubrication. It needs encouragement. That's what lubricates fellowship. It needs a coming alongside. And here's a couple pointers. Number one, verbalize it. Say it. Oftentimes, I've heard husbands and wives say, Oh, I don't need to verbalize. I mean, I, they know. She and he, they know that I love her. I told her when we got married. Verbalize it. Look them in the eye. Give them eye contact. Say, I love you. 
You mean a lot to me. Verbalize it and exemplify it. How about touching them? Putting your arm around them? How about following up on that person?